Hello and welcome to the Winter Highlights episode of the EMJ podcast with me, Evgenia Kutsuki. I'm the editor of the EMJ family of journals and will be taking the place of our usual host, Jonathan, for this special seasonal episode. As the year draws to a close, now's the perfect time to shine a spotlight on the wonderful guests who have spoken about such a wide range of topics on the EMJ podcast over the last three months. We have selected some of the most memorable moments, so sit down, grab a warm drink and enjoy. Jonathan had the pleasure of speaking to David Crosby, who is the Head of Prevention and Early Detection Research at Cancer Research UK, about the ways in which the complexity of cancer evolution can make the disease incredibly hard to detect at an early stage. Early detection can be a challenge because in humans, disease, as we've discussed, often presents quite late. And so if we're diagnosing people when the cancer's already grown, already spread, the biology of that advanced cancer is very different to the biology of that cancer when it was uh, a baby um, because cancer evolves over time. So, you know, the first uh, mutations that cause a cancer Uh, might only be one or two particular mutations. But then as the cancer grows and the cells divide, they're unstable, so they continue to mutate. And then suddenly it's not just one clone that's expanded up, but there are multiple clones. Um, You know, the cancer has evolved. Different, you know, species of cancer start breeding within one tumour, and suddenly that disease is then much more complex. So understanding the biology through looking at late-stage cancer tells you about late-stage cancer, but not how it first started. In the same interview, Crosby also spoke about his hopes for the future of cancer detection, including the opportunities presented by current research around preventive intervention strategies, which could lead to better outcomes for many patients with cancer. But looking um, to the future, there's also a huge opportunity and a a kind of growing um, excitement and field of research around mechanistically informed, biologically driven preventive intervention. So that means if we understand the mechanisms of cancer genesis and, uh, for example, the immune system's response to early cancers, we can intervene uh, to to, um, nip those cancers in the bud and, and prevent them. Um, before they develop into full cancer. So cancer vaccines would be one example of that. Um, There's research ongoing where people are looking at the manifestation of um, cancer antigens, so particular proteins expressed on the surface of early cancers, um, which are not present on, on healthy cells, against which we can vaccinate. And so you could, you know, essentially induce an immune response in a healthy individual that, uh, meant their immune system was trained to hunt out and kill um, cancers before they even emerge. On the same theme, Arndt Vogel, who is a committee member of the European Society for Medical Oncology and head of the Gastrointestinal Cancer Centre and Centre for Personalised Medicine at Medicinische Hochschule Hannover in Germany, spoke about primary and secondary resistance in cancer care and its ever-changing evolution. We can control the tumors for a while, but the tumors, they are changing all the time and we need to be more effective. Just having a genetic target and a, and a specific inhibitor does not guarantee long-term benefit. Yeah? So you really need to have a better understanding on primary and secondary 
resistance. Yeah, and I think this is the main topic in the next years to come, in addition to the new drugs, that we have a better understanding of, of resistance and can come up with, with maybe combination therapies um, to overcome this resistance. Fogel went on to discuss his multiple roles at ESMO, including his work on the Guidelines Steering Committee. He discussed how the group first identifies gaps in oncological guidelines for practice and how it incorporates recent data or study findings. Within the um, ESMO uh, Guidelines Steering Committee, of course, we need to always discuss, so what are the most urgent guidelines we, we need to work on uh, so to identify really gaps, rare tumors where we do not have any guidelines at all, for example, or tumor types where we have um, significant developments in recent years um, to, to, to start new, new update, basically. And then we have these so-called living guidelines where we all always need to update the guidelines that have been just published. I mean, in HTC or in BDC, we have new new data or in all the other tumor types, new new phase three data, which need to be incorporated. So, I mean, this is something we discussed in the steering committee. Um, and, and then I, I hope this is helpful to, to really have the most accurate guidelines on, on the most important topics. Now, of course, we cannot always cover everything at, at every time. Yeah, so we need to prioritize. In an episode titled The Magnificent Surgeon, Jonathan spoke to Ricky Bogle, a consultant at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London, whose specialty is hepatopancreatobiliary oncology. Bogle talked about collaboration between different hospital sites worldwide and the opportunities that this offers in practice, as well as how he has combined his research and clinical interests. You really need to go to other big units or the premier units and see how they do things, see if they do things differently to the way you've been, you've been taught to do them. And you'll pick up new techniques, you'll pick up different ways of doing things. So that was kind of the this sort of green light for me to think, yeah, maybe I should, maybe I should travel, maybe I should go elsewhere. And as you were saying, I was a, I was a uh, clinical lecturer at the Bir at Birmingham University at the time, so I kind of took the opportunity to combine my research interests and my clinical interests. And an opportunity came up to visit the Mayo Clinic uh, via my, one of my PhD supervisors, Professor Adams at Birmingham. So I took up the opportunity, and uh, I went, I went initially went to the Mayo Clinic. I was in the um, in the labs there looking at research into cholangiocarcinoma, which is a type of uh, cancer that can develop in the liver or in the bile tubes. And they were, they were or they still are, a, a, a world-leading institution into looking at the mechanisms that, that drive that cancer. Stephen Loret, who is the founding director of the Giga Consciousness Research Unit at the Liège University Hospital in Belgium and an associate professor at the Serval Research Centre at Laval University in Quebec, Canada, joined Jonathan for a deep dive into consciousness. The pair discussed Loret's research into the human mind in health and disease. Is it true that these patients who are not responding when we look at their motor activity, truly have no functioning brain and mind. And so that's where it started to use functional MRI, asking them questions and then seeing that some of these patients we used to call in a persistent vegetative state, which is a terrible term. We now coin these people um, 
unresponsive wakefulness, which is neutral. So these unresponsive patients sometimes can show brain activations that we can pick up and then we could decode it into a yes-no answer. And so this was proof of concept that uh, we can actually communicate with people who are unable to move and, and now are with the team working very hard on what we call brain-computer interfaces, which is the same approach, but it's with cheaper EEG measures. Loret was not the only guest whose research is aiming to positively change care for patients. Dipali Pao, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Applied Sciences and the founder of 3Rs LabPal at Northumbria University in the UK, specializes in pediatric oncology and told Jonathan about the two key aims of her research into children's leukemia. And therefore, this has been the aim of my research, my research group that you mentioned, 3Rs LabPal. I established it at Northumbria University. And here, the research we do has two key aims. One is to find better treatments for children's leukemia, treatments that are safer with reduced toxicity, and also kinder, treatments that have that minimize the chance of them failing, so there's a reduced risk of treatment resistance. And the second is, how do we actually find these better treatments? For that, we need improved research tools. So that is the second aim of my research. Pa explained an important discovery in stem cell research and creation and how she has been able to implement this into her work. In 2008, round about there, Professor Shinya Yamanaka developed an amazing technology where he showed we could take any cell in our body and we can convert it to a cell that behaves like an embryonic stem cell i.e. what is an embryonic stem cell, it can give rise to any type of cell in the body. Usually embryos are used for this purpose, but in order to come up with a technology that was more ethically sound, Professor Yamanaka showed that you could take any cell in the body and reprogram it to this induced pluripotent stem cell. And since then, this has been a breakthrough in stem cell research. Here, I've used this induced pluripotent stem cell technology. In fact, it won uh, Professor Yamanaka and Professor John Gurdon. They both won a Nobel Prize for this discovery breakthrough research. So in my research, I use this technology to work with induced pluripotent stem cells. And I use these induced pluripotent stem cells to make different cell types in the body. So these are human-induced pluripotent stem cells. I'll refer to them as iPSCs. And from here, I can differentiate them or I can add reagents to allow them to become any cell type I want. So I can generate a wide variety of different bone marrow cells. For Angela Goyal, who is a general practitioner and media doctor and the director of Inspired Medics, research has always been a huge interest. After failing to find a specific course in lifestyle medicine that worked with her busy lifestyle, she told Jonathan how she created her own accessible education for clinicians. So after I did this functional medicine training, which was quite an intense course, and it was over a week's learning, and it was quite expensive as well. But 
I felt that this wasn't actually the course I was looking for when I first became interested in lifestyle medicine. I was a busy GP, you know, busy raising two children on my own. What I actually wanted was a weekend course, two days, learn the basics of lifestyle medicine and how to implement it in my practice. But that didn't exist at that time. This is back in 2017. So I thought actually the best thing I can do with all this knowledge that I've gained is to create this kind of education that's accessible because not everybody spend thousands of pounds and take a week off work. So what I felt clinicians needed was to have all this information condensed into one or two days. Goyal also enlightened Jonathan into what first led her to specialise in dermatology. Now, after a few years of of being a general practitioner, I actually started to realise that whilst I like the continuity of care and seeing the patients again and again, I found that from the medical science side, I was becoming more interested in specialising and that's what led me to dermatology. And I also felt that dermatology was a field that was quite neglected in medicine. I don't know about yourself, but in, in the UK, we, we don't get a lot of training in dermatology. William Barrett, a talented surgeon who has worked all over the world, looked to the past and the future in his practice. He spoke about how our ancestry has led to the evolution of the process of ketosis in the body. Ketosis turns out is really, really good. So why does the body know how to do ketosis? It's a survival mechanism. When we were, let's say, living on the the plains and we were starving and we would go in general 48 hours without food, and we ran out of our glycogen stores in our liver and in our muscles, then we would switch over to burning fat and we would go into ketosis. Now, turns out your, your whole body changes when it's in ketosis. You start thinking more clearly and think about a human who's starving. He needs to survive. And what does he need to do to survive? He needs to find food. So you're thinking more clearly. You're able to problem solve more clearly. You actually have more mental clarity and focus. And then turns out our body is able to travel long distances in ketosis. Barrett then went on to examine one of the benefits of social media, stating that it allows specialists from different fields to foster collaboration. The general surgeons aren't talking that much with the lipidologists. And social media has been a way for those people to really interact. And it has led to what I think is a lot more collaboration. Karen Butler from the York Health Economics Consortium in the UK explained her work on health economics, a multifaceted field of modeling research that aims to understand and analyze the production and consumption of healthcare. So health economics in theory is the is a field of economics that's focused on the analysis um, and understanding of the production and consumption of health and healthcare. So it's very broad and there are a lot of things that could potentially fall under that. But I think it's, for me, a lot of it's about making decisions or it's it's a big logic problem. And we would always, we and other consultancies aim to sort of collect evidence and make it coherent and understandable and relevant and use that 
to make, we don't use it to make decisions, but other people can then use that to make decisions. Butler also emphasized the value, both morally and economically, of viewing a treatment pathway over time rather than in separate steps. It's an important point. It's not just the cost of the drug or the piece of kit. It's the implications for the entire treatment journey. Is is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So if we, so for example, say it cost um, quite a lot to provide a medication, but it reduced a number of side effects that required many inpatient stays. It's that kind of information. So if we provide information about cost at all, we then combine that with other information, maybe about the resources that are used by the person and the experience they have along the way as well. And then it may be that even though the treatment is more expensive up front, there is a saving like further down the road. And that's the kind of thing that we're modeling that we're looking for. So that's why I need to consider the entire treatment pathway and the entire experience over the time and all of the sort of important clinical endpoints. And with that, our wonderful schedule of 2022 podcasts draws to a close. We hope that this year's offerings have piqued your interest and brought you new ideas and perhaps even some laughter. All of us here at EMJ wish you a joyful Christmas and a very happy new year. See you in 2023.